people. We will be finishing the first chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 <clears throat> this morning. We, you have looked the last few weeks at the introduction, of course, and the setting. I'm sure that uh, Pastor David has gone into the historical background of what Corinth was like, the people that lived there, their lifestyle. Uh, of course, it was on an isthmus, and uh, it was a major um, cross-section where the people coming from east to west, going to Rome, and so forth, would cross there. It was also a place where ships would come, and they could actually through some contraptions of some kind, carry ships across land. In the, the 1900s, they were actually able to make a canal there. But it was a sailor town, a place a lot of stuff happened that was uh, not very good. Very sexually immoral, and of course, uh, a place that Paul was able to establish a church. And you looked at that, I'm sure, the last few weeks, that he not only did he establish a church, but then... He was able to uh, stay there, minister there, and as he left, he went on to Ephesus, and that's where he's writing from. And as we see today and this last week uh, when the message was brought to you, there was some disunity and some things going on there that, that, was, that weren't very good within the church that he was trying to address. And so we'll continue that study today in verse 18. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The word of the cross, brothers and sisters, the word of the cross. The cross is the linchpin of our salvation. Without the cross, we don't have anything. The cross would be the same in our day and age as the electric chair over on Broad River Road, not too far from here. Okay, it was a terrible symbol in that culture, a, a symbol of shame. They would strip those who were put on the cross. And, and because we in our culture don't want to see that picture, we put loincloths on them and, and, and dress it up, but it was, a, it was a terribly shameful thing to be put on a cross. But the cross, to us who are being saved, is wonderful, isn't it? But to the world, it's a symbol of, of death. It's a symbol of shame. It's a symbol of rejecting the authority at hand, okay, and being designated a, a criminal, uh, the lowest immoral person in that society. But for us who are being saved, this cross is salvation. For us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And the gospel is in essence what? What is the gospel? Real quick. The gospel is the fact that Jesus came, God sent his own son, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So he sent his son to earth on a mission to die on a cross. And by doing that, he shed his blood on that cross and made a way for us to be saved. 
He made a solution by his death on the cross for us to become sons and daughters of God. On that cross, he made a way for us to escape paying for our own sins. And he laid it all on his son on that cross. And when we accept him, he takes all the righteousness of his son and he pours it into us. It's called imputation. And he takes all of the mess in our lives and all of the shame and all of the sin and all of the mess and he puts it on Jesus. So the cross is a beautiful thing. It's power. It's powerful. The cross changed the world, brothers and sisters. It changed the world. Jesus died. He rose again the third day. His disciples scattered. They hid. They were locked in the upper room, right? But Jesus rose. He entered the room, okay? Supernaturally, he went right through the wall or he just appeared, okay? And those guys' lives were changed. And when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, just a few, few days later, the world changed, didn't it? Within 300 years, you have the whole Roman Empire embracing the Christian faith. And then it was off to the races. It was messy, very messy from then on. Church history is a messy thing if you study it. Very messy. But the gates of hell have not prevailed, have they? Jesus has continued to be lifted up. People have continued to be saved generation after generation. There'll be a wonderful host, a wonderful host of people there. I always wonder, you know, how many people will be there? And I do the math. I love math. Think of the math. Think of how many people are on earth. Think of how many Christians say that they're Christians. Think of how many of those truly know Christ. And you just dream, just dream. You know, could it be 500 million? Could it be a billion when we get there from to the end of the world all the way back to the beginning? Could it be a billion people? Could it be two billion people? We don't know. But it's going to be a lot of people, a whole lot of people. It's going to be awesome. So what it says here is this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of of the clever, I will set aside. What Paul is saying here is this. The world has wisdom. The wisdom of the world is depicted very clearly in Ecclesiastes. Okay, the world's wisdom is not God's wisdom, is it? The world's wisdom is very logical. Now, there's some overlap, but the world's wisdom is the wisdom depicted in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And what is the world trying to do? It's trying to glorify itself, isn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Its agenda is to promote itself, okay? Um, what were they doing at Babel? What was the essence of the sin that led to their downfall at Babel? What was it? Yeah trying to be like God, trying to create a world in which people were at the center, humanism, okay, secular humanism. It said that everything, they 11.6 says everything they desired to do in their heart, God looked down and uh, saw that, you know, that, that they were going to continue this pattern of, of self-glorification and humanism. And he scattered them, didn't he? He's not scattering them this time. I think he's going to let this ride out to the end from what we see in Scripture. 
and the internet and the things we're purposing to do, the scientists, those who are thinking God's thoughts after him, thinking that they're doing it better than him and are smarter than him, are they really? Are they really smarter than him? Are the physicists smarter than him? Are the scientists smarter? No, obviously not. They're thinking God's thoughts after him. But they still think that they've got it. They still think that they've got a corner on wisdom. They still think that they have a corner on uh, life and what it means to, to have wisdom, what it means uh, to have truth. They think they have a corner on truth. We see this all around us in the media. We see this now in the uh, educational community and the scientific communities. I have a dear cousin who I dearly love, very close to, who married um, a Hindu uh, who is one of the top scientists in the world. He is at Harvard. He got a fellowship to go there, and he'll remain there as long as he wants. He's, he's published all over the world. He's got things going on. His specialty is Alzheimer's. Praise God. He's making great strides in, in research into Alzheimer's disease. And uh, Amar is a precious member of the family. We love him dearly. But he doesn't know Christ. He's without Christ. And his God, as he goes back and forth in banners with the family on Facebook, his God is science. His God is education. His God is, is the, the truth that science gives. And to introduce something transcendent, to introduce God from, is very offensive to the scientific community. And it, and it says to them that they're in subjection to that and that, that, that their wisdom is not, not good enough or that, it, you know, there's just all kinds of lines and trains of thought as he banners back and forth on Facebook with, with family. And um, it's interesting to watch the world's thinking. It's very clever, isn't it? The world lifts up cleverness and cleverness of speech. And even as we preach the gospel. We want to make sure that we don't do it in mere cleverness of speech to entertain and to tickle the ears, right? The scriptures are clear about that. But the wisdom of God is different. Today we'll look at the, the foolishness of the wisdom of the world, number one. We'll look at the wisdom of God and then we'll look at the riches of being sons and daughters. Verse 19 here is a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, talking about the cleverness of the spirit of the age. Now, who is the God of the age? Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan, the devil, okay? So, he is the one that uses this cleverness, this, uh, the spirit of our culture, the spirit of the age to his advantage. And his goal is to what? What's his job description? To steal, kill, and destroy. He's good at it, isn't he? very, very good at it, to steal, kill, and destroy, and to package it in beautiful packages, to package it into very clever, very uh, soothing, very attractive packages so that we get sucked in, right? That's his job. It's, he's the big tempter. He's a liar. We know his doom, will, what that will be at the end. His, his goal is to strip us away from God and from truth and from um, our families, from, from what is good and what is right. Every Thursday night for the last nine years, I've spoken to homeless veterans. And from 7 to 8 o'clock, I'm there, and I'm looking at men 
a room full right now, about 70 or 80, who have nowhere to go. They don't have a mom or dad that will take them in. They've burned every bridge because of an addiction, because of prison or choices that they've made in their lives. And I have to try to give them hope, something. And, and guys, I have nothing to give them except the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no hope. They don't really have anything. There's nothing. They can take advantage of programs. They can go to the VA and complain to me every week, which they do, about what they're not giving them and what, you know, they can't get their total disability or they can't get this or they can't get that or, you know, complain, 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 complain. But they need hope. These guys are looking for hope. Brothers and sisters, I have seen over and over again the last nine years them take the hope of the gospel. Many of them have taken the hope of the gospel, and I've seen lives changed. I've seen attitudes change. I've seen God begin to bless them in small ways at first and just bigger and bigger and bigger. These guys going out on their own, getting their own homes, apartments, vehicles. I've seen vehicles donated from churches and from organizations on their behalf out of the blue. The, the gospel is radical. The gospel is powerful to change lives, and it's effective. It's very effective. So, Verse 20, let's look at 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? How has God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Who does he use to do that? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well-pleasing through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe the message of the gospel. Again, it's foolish to those who don't believe that a man would die on a tree, that a man would die and save the whole world. Logic, it doesn't compute, does it? But for those of us who are in Christ, who know Christ, who love Christ, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God that he's given to save humanity. Let's look over at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9. Let's look at the God we serve and look at the way it describes Him. It's a fascinating passage on our God, amazing God that we serve. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. And let Him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And look at what it says about God here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So even the most brilliant of those in the educational community, even the most brilliant researcher, scientific researcher, even the most brilliant metaphysicist are not as smart as God, are they? By His grace, He's just allowing them to find things that are true about the universe and are allowing them to learn. But He is so much higher than they. 
and He is so much higher than us. Let's continue on <clears throat> to verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Every culture seeks the transcendent. The transcendent is just something over and above that they can't, they can't see and touch, okay? So for the Jews, they're looking for a miracle, okay? They're looking for something supernatural. The Greeks, as you know, were those who were amazingly smart, Okay, Aristotle, Socrates, right, Plato, smart people. They were able to form logic and teach us about what logic is and teach us to think, okay? And that's good. That's good. It doesn't stand on its own, though, does it? Truth goes all the way back to God himself. He is the one that is truth. But every society looks for that transcendent. Everything, even, even every society, even down on the Amazon, those tribes, they're looking for something above and beyond. They're looking, and many of them we've read missionary stories have been ministered to by missionaries who, who God has enlightened to go into those tribes and prepared to reach those tribes and to reach those who are seeking for the transcendent, who are looking for God, and they've been saved through that. Many times, he's even put it in their hearts through dreams and so forth, and they've seen a missionary walking in and dressed in a certain way, and he comes in. This is happening all over the Middle East right now, continually. I don't know if you've read the books or seen the, the stories, but this is happening throughout the Muslim community all over. We have two or three from our church over in Calvary Chapel, Lexington, who have gone about twice a year now over to Jordan. And they have ministered over there to those who are <clears throat> refugees. And they're hearing the stories. God is coming to many Muslims in dreams. And he's coming, Jesus is coming in, in their sleep while they're sleeping. And he's coming and presenting himself to them. And they're, they're getting saved as they hear the message of the gospel, as they see Christ come to them. And God supernaturally is saving many, 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 many in very dark in a very very dark place again foolishness you guys to those who are, who don't believe they they would discredit that and say it's nothing it's ridiculous it doesn't make sense but it is for those of us who know the lord jesus and who walk in his spirit and who listen for his voice and know that he can speak through a dream or speak through a friend or speak through life circumstances and ultimately we know he always speaks through his word, right? This is the standard, okay? If the Lord ever speaks to you, make sure it's always according to his word. It doesn't contradict his word. But these things are happening. These things are happening, and it's the wisdom of God through which it's happening. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 16 says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is using sarcasm with, these, with this church right here because they were very stuck on themselves and they really thought a lot of themselves. And he's saying, you know, we, the preachers of the gospel and those in the Christian community that are walking in the spirit, uh, we are fools we are weak, but you Corinthians, you, you, you are strong. You're distinguished. We are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. 
We are poorly clothed, and we are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all the earth, even until now, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. They thought that they had it. They thought that they were wise. They thought that they were distinguished. They thought that they were walking in the right way. But were they? Were they walking in the spirit? Were they walking in unity with one another? Were they walking in the love that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is going to teach you about in a few chapters? Were they walking in that love with one another? They weren't, were they? They were at each other's throats. They were, they were, they were, uh, dis, there was disunity. Um, they were um, not walking according to the way God would have them walk. But they thought they were, they were hot stuff. They thought that they had it together. They were a Christian community that really thought that they were doing the right thing and acting the right way when they weren't. They were even arguing over, as you studied last week or the week before, about who baptized who. And, okay, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by somebody else. And, and some were saying, well, well we're, we're of Christ. And some were saying, well, I'm of Paul. And, and somebody else was saying, well, well I'm of, uh, of Christmas, uh, let's see, uh, Apollos. Uh, I'm of Cephas, okay? So they're all divided up again the wisdom of the world. Let's look down at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The reason that Christ Jesus was a stumbling block for the, to the Jews is the same uh, as it is to some of us who really struggle with Jesus being Lord. The Jews wanted Jesus not only to be their Lord, their Savior, okay, uh, spiritually, but they wanted a physical Savior. They wanted Jesus to not only save them, but change their lives so everything would work out well, so that life would go good, okay, so that things would be uh, peaceful and that they would have health, wealth, and, and just uh, eliminate the Romans and have everything just go good all the time, right? They wanted Jesus to take over. The disciples struggled with this too, up until when? All the way till Jesus was literally being lifted in the sky. All the way till, till chapter, uh, chapter 1 of Acts, verse 7, 8. The last thing they asked them, the very last thing, is that at this time you're going to usher in the kingdom. <laughs> they wanted it, didn't they? They wanted it like we do. We want things to go well, too. We want the kingdom now, too. But it hasn't changed, has it? He's left us with a mission, and he's left us vulnerable. We're vulnerable before a world that wants to do the same thing the devil wants to do, steal, kill, and destroy. And it's hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. But it's the wisdom of God, and it's foreordained for us to dwell in this society, in this world that we can't trust. He is the only one that we can trust, and He will give us the strength and the power to endure it. He will carry us through. 
Praise God. Verse 24, verse 25, excuse me, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The message of the cross demonstrates to us God's greatest power and greatest wisdom, redeeming us from hell and rescuing us from the enemy himself. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wives according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. We've looked at the wisdom of the world. We've looked at the wisdom of God. Now let's look at the kingdom of, the kingdom of God. What, what are we made of, okay? There's not many of us, you guys, that are called, that are very, very wise according to the world's standards. There are not many of us that are called that are very mighty according to the world's standards. There are not, there's not many of us called from nobility according to the ways of this world. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God doesn't think like we think. I think like this. God, if you'll only save the top five NBA basketball players, if you'll only save the top five NFL, or even one or two, if you'll only save the top pop singers, if you'll only save the top scientists in the world, if you do this, then logically people are going to see that and more people are going to come to Christ. If you'll only save the, the son of, of the king in Saudi Arabia, if you'll only save... Uh, the leader, the prime minister of India or of, of Israel, okay? So this is our thinking, isn't it? If God puts strategic, saves strategic people, if those people come to know him and that happens, then logically the, the, the world will see Christianity as, as supreme as, as, does God do that? Is that who he saves? Does he save many that are noble and are wise according? He doesn't, does he? He saves those of us who are pretty ordinary. He saves those of us who are pretty ordinary. And that's how he's, changed the, he's changing the world, through those of us who are ordinary. Through those of us, according to uh, verse 27, uh, who are, it says the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. And God vindicates us over and over and over again. That's a wonderful concept. I love vindication. The best verse for vindication is in Psalm chapter 23. God sets a table before us where? In the presence of who? Our enemies. Yeah. So he's chosen us who people despise, who people think, oh, that Jesus lover, or he's, he's, he's a Jesus freak, or she's... She's just not, not, not thinking according to the ways of the world, and, and she just loves God so much that she's lost her touch, okay? God has chosen us who people are uncomfortable with when we're walking with Jesus, aren't they? When we're standing up uh, for Christ. I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 3. I can't remember the verse, but it says... It says this, those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, okay? 
we will. If we make the choices we need to make, when God has called us to make those, we're going to be ridiculed, we're going to be maligned, and we are going to be persecuted for those decisions. And depending on where God has called you, it can be more serious uh, than other times. I remember uh, um, I I work right now, I have a company, and it's easier to run a company and to live for Christ than it would be for me to go work for another company that wasn't a Christian company where a lot of patterns and so forth are, are, are set into place. And I've learned that over the years. And I've, it's neat because my company is kind of a refuge for those who work for me. We have a, every Monday morning we have a devotion and, and um, we, not everybody in our, my company is Christian at all, but it, it is a refuge for those who work there. Now there was a time I didn't work for, my, for, for myself. Many years I did not. And I remember in Charlotte working for a, a large landscape company that was putting in full-grown oak trees for these large uh, corporate uh, subdivisions that were going in all over Charlotte back in the uh, mid to late 80s. And I remember uh, there was a severe drought. And I remember being out with my water truck. I drove a, a, a 2,500 uh, one-ton truck with a large water tank on the back, and I watered trees all day. And that is, is a good job. I mean, I didn't mind it. You know, I just did my, I'm a guy that likes to do my job and go home. It's a summer job, you know, in college. But I remember people driving by and honking their horns saying, what are you doing with our water? Are you, you know, emptying our water out on the ground? Severe water shortage. And if you were an insured landscaper and the job that you were doing was insured, okay, then the law gave you the ability to water. And so I asked my boss, is it, are we insured? Are these trees insured? Are we doing this legally? He said, oh, yeah, 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 we are. Well, his boss came to town once and was asking me a lot of questions. We're in dialogue and it got around to the fact that they weren't insured and that uh, my boss had been lying to me. And I told him right away, I said, well, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, your full-grown oak trees are expensive and, 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 you know, they're beautiful and I want them to live, but I can't break the law. I can't be the one to break the law for you. Now, that's foolishness to the world. They think that's stupid. Now, these are full-grown oak trees. They probably cost at that time two or $3,000 a piece. But I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to break the law. I didn't want to dishonor Christ. So I went to my boss and he just had a fit. He started screaming and throwing stuff. He went into my truck and threw my tools out and, you know, just went nuts. Went crazy. That was a small potato persecution, but lost my job. I told him I'd weed eat or do whatever else he needed. No, I don't want you working for me, you know. Just trying to be honest, but... uh, So many of you have been in situations so much bigger than that where you've had to make a stand for Christ. And again, in the world's standards, in the world's eyes, it's foolish. Some of you in school, some of you young people have taken hard stands for Christ amidst your peers at school. And you've been maligned. You've been persecuted. It's been hard for you to walk with Christ there. God will honor that. God will honor that and he will bless you as you continue to make those hard decisions for Jesus and to stand on truth, to be a light in a dark place. All right, let's wrap it up. Verse 28, in the base things of the world and the despised things God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, 
so that no man may boast before God. But by doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, became to us the wisdom from God and, the right, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is a beautiful verse, you guys. I don't want to miss verse 29, though, before we get there. So that no man may boast before the Lord. God is just saying this. God has chosen us who are despised, those of us who are marginalized, those of us who are persecuted, to shame those who are in the world, to show his truth to the world. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before the Lord. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. Let's turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, by the way, is how we accept Christ. By believing. Even if it's a mustard seed faith, even if you struggle, even if it's small, it's through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So we can't save ourselves, can we? We can't say, okay, we believe in the cross, but it's not enough. I need to work and make sure that my salvation is firm, to make sure my salvation is secured. No, it is a gift of God. Look, look what it says in verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So it's the cross plus nothing that secures our salvation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Your salvation, our salvation is a gift. So we can't go and tell everybody how good we are, how hard we've worked, how much we've done, how much we deserve the salvation that we have. No. No guilt, no glory. He's got all of our shame nailed to the cross, but can we, get in, can we get an ounce of, can we get a smidgen of glory, a speck of glory? None, because it has nothing to do with our works. It has everything to do with what he's done for us. And we receive it by faith. All we have to do is believe it, believe the gospel. So, we're given the gospel in verse 30. We're given Christ. We're in Christ. We're surrounded by Christ. We're loved by Christ. It says in Romans chapter 8, we're made sons and daughters. We're adopted as his own into his family. And then look what it says here. He gives us righteousness. You guys, that is an amazing thing. He gives us righteousness. He gives us the very righteousness of his son. As it said, I don't know if you missed it, but back up in verse, let's look at it, first part of this chapter. Look at what he says about our righteousness in verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end? Now, on the day of Christ, that's the judgment day. Look what you will be in Christ on the judgment day. Look at what it says in verse 8. You will be partially guilty. What? 
blameless. Blameless. <laughs> blameless? Me? I know what's in here. I know what's in my flesh. I know the weaknesses. I know the thoughts that have been through my mind, even this morning, that I've had to give to the Lord and, and, and ask God for forgiveness for. We will be blameless because of, and be given His righteousness because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's not all. Look what else. Sanctification. Oh, man, that's a double blessing there, a double gift. Not only are you positionally blameless before the Father right now, if you die, will you go straight into the presence of the Father because positionally you are perfect because of what Jesus did on the cross? When He has a mission for us to finish here and we're still here after we come to know Him, we're becoming more and more like Jesus. It's called progressive sanctification. And it's a beautiful thing. We're becoming more and more like Him day by day. We're, we're growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control because we're made like Him through the power of the Spirit working in us. The third, gift he get, the third gift He gives us here is redemption. Our bodies will be redeemed. We will be redeemed. We're going to be given a new body. In the present sense, we're redeemed from death and hell. We're, we're redeemed from the world of the enemy. We're redeemed from the prince of the power of the air. We're, we're bought back. Re redemption is a term. I had a friend whose stuff was all stolen on Friday. They busted in a shed and stole a whole bunch of equipment and, and instruments and amplifiers, a whole bunch of stuff, okay. big, big dollar stuff, okay? Now, if he finds that stuff at a pawn shop locally, Unless he can prove through a police report, okay, and maybe some video footage of who brought that stuff into the pawn shop to pawn it, he'll have to buy it back, okay? You with me? He'll have to buy his own stuff back, even though it's his stuff, unless he can prove that it's his by serial number, description, police report, and so forth. He'll have to buy it back if he wants it back. One of the things that was stolen was a bass guitar, okay, that was very special to him that he drove four weeks ago to, to get up in, uh, up in Maryland, okay? Very precious to him, okay? But if he can't prove through a serial number or through whatever the police in, in the pawn shop would, would, would deem necessary for him to, to be given it back, okay? He's going to have to buy it back, isn't he? That's redemption. How have we been bought back through Christ's death on the cross? We have been bought back from the devil. We've given him our souls. He's been our father. But through Christ, Christ has re rescued us. He's bought us back. He's redeemed us in this present life from the enemy himself. Let's finish now and look at two verses, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and then we'll look at Jude 24, and then we'll pray. Let's look at um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So guys, even though sometimes we get discouraged with our walk, with our sanctification, with the fact that, you know, we, 
we know Christ, but the enemy's telling us, look what you just did, look what you just thought, look how you just acted, look how you presented me in front of... No, God is doing his work in us. We will fail. We will go through times like Peter did where we will deny the Lord. If not in deed, with word, if not in word, in thought, okay, in our faithful struggle. But this verse promises that he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And let's look down at Jude 24, and we'll finish with this verse. And I'll give an illustration and we'll pray. Jude chapter 24. Jude is right before Revelation, and it's only one chapter, so 20, Jude 24 is the verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, when you breathe your last breath here, and you're in his presence, how will we present, be presented? Blameless? Because positionally, we've been given all the righteousness of Christ. And with great joy. What that means is he's not going to, when you get there, he's not going to be like, oh no, he's here. You know, what a mess up. He was just rotten, but you know, yes, he's saved, but you know, he's here. And, 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 and no blameless with great joy, with great joy, because of the work that we have done, because of the finished work of Christ and his righteousness that's been imputed to us. Amen? Amen. To me, there's not a better illustration of a person that God has taken from our world in which we live that God has taken from nothing and has made something out of him is Billy Graham. And I know there's a lot of controversy regarding his ecumenicalism and all those different things, reaching out to the Catholics and this and that and who prayed on stage and all that. But no, what a great guy. He loved Jesus, okay? And he spoke to over 215 million people in the course of his life. Nobody else has done that, okay? Billy Graham has been an influence, and his life has been used to give the gospel to countless people. But do you know where he started from? He started from a family. He, he began his journey as, as, uh, and was born in Charlotte, where I used to live. Mrs. Steed, who gave me $5, my dad was a pastor up there. Mrs. Steed, who gave me $5 every year for my birthday, told me one time, she says, Dan, she was about 90, 92 at the time. She says, Dan, I used to sit in back of Billy and his mama. And she said, I remember Billy turning around and looking all over during church, and his mama would grab him by the back of the neck. Son, look, you know, just a normal kid, just a normal boy. Grew up. His daddy was a, milk, was a, uh, was a dairy farmer. He and his brothers, it was a grandbrother's dairy farm up off of Park Road up in Charlotte. It's a normal family. It's a normal family. But God took Billy to a, a revival that Mordecai Ham was doing in Charlotte. And God saved that young man. He went on to Bible college. He started at Bob Jones. And he thought it was a little too rigid. So he went to Florida Bible College. Okay, 
And then from there he went to Wheaton, where, where he graduated and met Ruth, okay? She had been on the mission field in China, had grown up in China until she was 17. And he met Ruth and they married. And he began his ministry, okay? Just a normal man, just a normal fella from a dairy farm in Charlotte, okay? And um, not many noble, not many wise. But what did God do through him? God began a ministry, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association that still exists to this day. Now you've got his son Franklin with Samaritan's Purse, and God has taken that ministry and blessed countless thousands and millions of people all over the earth. He has spoken, uh, I think it's over 150 countries on earth that he's spoken, and again, over 215 million people. And brothers and sisters, um, that's a testimony. That's an example for all of us. God can use any of us who are willing to listen to his voice. Young people, God can use any of you who are willing to love Jesus and walk with Jesus and give your lives for Jesus to do amazing things for his kingdom. No matter if you're, you're in ministry like Billy Graham or whether you work a regular job like I do, um, Pastor David did for many years, you know, or as a teacher, like my wife was before we started having kids, she wanted to stay home and, and raise the kids. God can use you in so many countless ways in this earth to give the gospel, to show Jesus to people, and he will use us. He will bless us, and he will bring us home when it's our time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Father, thank you that you have chosen to use the weak things of the world, Father. Thank you, God, that you have put to shame the worldly wisdom, Father, that you don't honor that, but it's of the devil himself, the prince of the power of the air, Father, that the sons of disobedience lure us and try to, to reach us and try to pull us in, God. Father, please give us strength through your spirit to walk with you, to walk in righteousness, Lord, to be able to stand up in this evil day, Lord, that is trying to win our hearts and our children's hearts and our grandchildren's hearts over. Please, Father, protect us from the enemy. Please, Father, please. And Father, we thank you for what you're going to do, and we praise you even now. Father, go out with my brothers and sisters, Lord. May they walk with you. May they be encouraged in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.